0: Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps it all remembered that old saying, our Corrales. Corrales.
1: second officer slog i'm your host M. with me is regular co-host jackson tyler hello it is episode 18 oh, we've been doing this podcast for 18 years our baby podcast is an adult now i know they grow up so fast yeah happy star trek day jackson why is it Trek? Star- i mean i guess we're recording a podcast, we're about, recording star a trek. podcast about star trek yes <laughs> discovery question, really. discovery is no longer airing and it's a real bummer
2: I don't like it. I, I got yeah very no. Used to like
1: that. I we were exhausted every Sunday because we'd watch it and then be up too late. But now that it's gone, I miss it. <laughs> it was new Star Trek, and we watched it every week. And there were theories. There, it is great to have
2: airing Star Trek. It's fantastic. I'm sad that the realities of TV mean that it what, we don't just get Star Trek every week for 26 weeks.
1: Yeah, no, that would be much better, honestly. Uh,
2: it's it wouldn't, the money doesn't exist, it's, it's another time.
1: Yeah, well, what are you going to do?
2: I guess Have there were 46 episodes of Star Trek a year for a while. No. Oh
1: my, can you imagine how spoiled everyone was in the mid-90s? That They didn't know what they had. Yeah, no, I, I was, I watched season one of Voyager and I was like, eh, I don't want to watch Voyager, it's kind of boring. I didn't watch DS9, like, I There was new Star Trek. I was into Star Trek. I didn't watch it. What was wrong with me? I don't even know, but you fucked up. Yeah, no, I, I really did. It's a shame. It's That's a shame. all right. Now I can enjoy Star Trek as an adult. I I honestly enjoy Star Trek more than I probably did as a kid. Oh, definitely. Different way. D- different Very way. different way. <laughs> yeah, but now I like all the Star Trek, and as a kid, I only cared about TNG, so... You still care about TNG the most. Um it's the best star trek. I don't know if I care about it the most at this point. That's maybe a question to like be levied as we go forward. I don't know. I think maybe my interest have like gone back to TOS as like the most interesting star trek.
2: I mean right now with Discovery and watching yeah. more TOS, like that is definitely the thing you're into at the moment. Um I don't know, it's interesting doing this as like a ongoing podcast in the background where we are going to read a book a month and then watch a couple episodes every month is going to be interesting as a way of like structuring being involved with something rather than just i'm really into star trek right now i'm watching it a bunch and then stopping yep yeah i know for sure it'll change as we go on it'll be a journey we're having a good time yeah
1: all right um let's just get into our episode today because it might yeah it might be a little long who knows we'll see but uh, this episode, we are covering two episodes of the original series, and then the first Discovery novel, and then uh, next month I will list stuff after I tell you what we're watching. This is a little messy, whatever, I don't care. We have just did a big podcast and now I'm tired. The, the this... good news about this episode is that it is all, like, we are going to be
2: spoiling ma- maximum some TOS and Discovery. So if you haven't watched DS9 uh, or even TNG and you're like in on the Discovery wave, this is a fine podcast to listen to
1: nope we are talking about the cage which is the original series pilot we are talking about dagger of the mind which is the original series season one episode one and we are reading
2: 10 ten ten, 10 10 10 sorry
1: 10 yes sorry i looked at it and said one <laughs> and we <laughs> are know. reading desperate hours which is the first discovery novel by david mack if you want to listen to that please look forward to it next month we are covering two more episodes of the original series we are watching Mud's Women, which is the original series season one, episode three, and Arena, which is original series season one, episode nineteen. Uh, both those quote unquote classic episodes. We are also reading finally the first Shatner vs. Star Trek novel, Ashes of Eden, written by William Shatner. Uh, In parentheses, because they're not not credited as Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens, who wrote uh, all these books with William Shatner. Uh, This is the beginning of a whole series of books. We're going to be reading the first three as we go forward for the next three months. So The first one is Ashes of Eden. Um, It's the one I remember the least, so I cannot vouch for its quality. But after that, we get into some real bullshit. So... We got a message saying that the Amzati episode was very fun
2: and they're excited to go back to like that kind of bullshit. Can we read more Peter David nonsense? And this isn't Peter David, but it is some high nonsense written by, quote unquote, written by William Shatner. So I'm hoping the itch will be scratched.
1: Yep. Yeah. So that's what we've got going forward. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. We're going to be living in TOS land for a little while. You know, that's not true because... The Return is like totally a TNG book with Kirk in it So that's fine
2: Yeah Yep. So that's it Let's, let's start this podcast Let's go
0: Space The final frontier
2: These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise Its five year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. first episode this week is The Cage, uh, the original pilot of the original series. (laughs) Memory Alpha has it as TOS episode 001. (laughs) Yep. Uh, First aired 4th of October 1988 because it was produced before Star Trek uh, was put out and never aired. But the footage was used in an episode called The Menagerie, which is episodes 12 and 13 of season one.
1: Uh, yes, but that air date is actually an aired in a special before, like, as yes. uh, TNG was airing. They found the, Look, they, the they actually The thing that would happen is they found, like, a full cut of it, but also the writer strike was going on. So they used it to fill time when they ran out of episodes because of the writer's strike.
2: Oh, right.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh,
2: because the actual footage of this episode had all been lost as they had just, like, spliced the raw footage into the menagerie. Yep. Uh, and then when they found it, they put it out, and now it is just accessible. Like, it's on Netflix. You don't have to go f- searching for it. It is part of the listing of the series if you if you want it anywhere. This yep. episode was written by Gene Roddenberry and was directed by Robert Butler. It takes place in 2254. Yeah.
1: That's a long time before uh, actual Star Trek. I guess it is. It's 11 years? Yeah, 11 years.
2: Or 12 years, maybe.
1: 11 years. It says 11 years.
2: I guess so. I thought yep. Star Trek was sixty six it
1: is, but uh so like they're already ongoing their five year mission, so it's like eleven this says eleven years before Captain Kirk's five year mission.
2: Oh, well okay, yeah. that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Uh I will try to remember this best to do a quick summary. Um You wanna know tell people what who what the what is the Enterprise look like in this era? Uh so the Enterprise is
2: commanded by Captain Christopher Pike. Uh and the crew are uh, Commander Una, who is called Number One.
1: Yeah, she so has no name in this, but Oh, Una comes people, from the books. Yeah, they have started referring to her as Una.
2: Okay, I, I, she's in the book, so yeah. yeah. So, there's Number One, who is the first officer, who is played uh, by, uh, at this point, Mijelle Barrett. Um, there is a doctor who is old, who's called Dr. Boyce, who no one really remembers or cares about. There is Spock, who is the science officer and has extremely emotions, uh, but is still played by a. Hang on, I'm gonna fucking forget Leonard Nimoy's name. Jesus, yeah, that no, was a,
1: I do it every oh. time too. It's really weird. The problem is, I think Leonard, and then I think McCoy, I think and, McCoy. and I yes. fall like immediately into that <laughs> almost trap every said Leonard time. McCoy, yeah. and was like, no, 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 no. Uh, so
2: they are on uh, a. They they find a distress signal uh that is like old radio waves and they find out that it is a a crashed ship an old crashed ship uh of a colony that went out to talos 4 and they go there and they find the colony um and that it's like old and uh they've been crashed there for years and obviously they've barely survived and uh Every, they're like oh we found you we're going to take you home and then suddenly they all disappear because they're not real they're like holograms that are being controlled by these aliens with butt brain heads called the Telosians, uh, who kidnap Christopher Pike and s- put him in the cage oh a menagerie <laughs> oh yes the menagerie <laughs> it's very funny knowing that because he never says a cage but he does say
1: this menagerie very pointedly yep Uh, so i laughed at that i think Uh, the original title for the episode was menagerie and then the studio probably was like no don't no one knows what that is called a cage
2: (laughs) good 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 good
1: uh and then
2: the bulk of the episode is these talosians filling pike's minds with uh various fantasies and trying to like get him to stay on their planet and follow their will because they keep speak uh they keep creatures in these cages and keep different species in these cages and like use them for their amusement use it as some kind of uh zoo and to see how they um react to things that is revealed during the course of these uh what are they like visions or uh holograms no it's it's more it's more like visions yeah visions yeah like they are real to him but he's just sitting there yeah um they are experiencing his emotions with him. Mm. Uh, they cannot, like, control him. They can't actually make him... They can't make him think something that isn't, like, part of his mind. They can't, like, invent things. that has to, like, come from him. Mm. So all of his, like, fantasies are, like, things he is worried about uh, or things he is fixated on. Like, they had a battle before they got there and then that battle gets revisited and blah, blah, blah. The conflict of the episode revolves around a girl, a woman, called... What's her name? Vina, <laughs> Vina, who is all a human who is also there and keeps showing up in these uh projections they put in his mind and he realizes that she is real and they are trying to get both of them to stay to like be mates so they could just have their humans on this planet and it's revealed later they're actually trying to see if these humans will be suitable to repopulate the planet because uh they all destroyed it through war because all the people on the planet had the power to put anything in anyone's head at any time and it turns out that's a really bad way to have a society so their planet did not last very long <laughs>
0: yeah uh
2: this is uh stopped as um they uh they they how do they how do they fight like they just kind of fix it uh, there's a big climactic moment where everyone comes together and the um the uh, Telosians give him this like this is what this mission was meant to be are you going to stay are you going to who are you going to pick as your Eve uh and it is revealed that Veena is like horribly disfigured from the crash and they have made her hot and pretty so Pike might love her so he allows her to stay behind uh as they realize that the the humans are too violent and too like volatile to be controlled by this power and so they must let them go they like you think that this episode it, it sounds like i'm kind of like winging this but the episode kind of ends really weird like it doesn't end with them actually dealing with the nature of the menagerie dealing with this planet they just kind of leave <laughs> and oh. let her go back yeah Vina doesn't want to go Vina doesn't want to go but i thought this episode was going to like actually confront the fact that they have a zoo of species and how fucked up that is <laughs> but it yeah, totally no. does not
1: it's only fucked up that they want to keep people not that they want to keep any other
2: alien it's, it's weird so yes that's kind of the basic plot sorry if it was a bit loose but we both watched this episode a long time ago because we wanted to watch it before reading the book and that's not normally how we do things normally we've watched the episode right before uh and yeah that's that's the cage
1: so, uh, being the first Star Trek episode ever produced, there's a lot of information if you want to go to Memory Alpha and read the extensive, extensive trivia notes about the production of this episode. We're kind of not going to talk about any of that stuff because there's so much of it that would be impossible to summarize in the scope of this podcast. Um, this episode, though, as like an introduction to Star Trek, both feels like an entirely different show and is like the most quintessential Star Trek bullshit you could ever imagine. And I really love it. Yeah, it's incredibly... like everything is off but it feels way more star trek than certain early tos episodes even like early tng episodes like oh yes so you you start with pike who is like the most like steely-eyed missile man captain until jonathan archer shows up Uh, (laughs) and he's just in that mode where he's like he's like war like it opens with him and they're like the crew is recovering from a battle on rigel seven and he's like i don't know if i want to be a captain anymore i i keep losing people i have to take care of everyone it's hard and the doctor brings in some booze and they drink in his quarters and the doctor's like well you could go off and become a slaver because apparently that's a normal thing you can do in 2254 uh we'll talk about maybe the state of the universe in the 2250s when we get to the book specifically but that line is always like it's a it's a weird thing to put in star trek as like just a thing for christopher pike to go do um we always, I always think about how fucking weird the fact that Orions are in
2: Star Trek and what they are like. That's just a weird thing. It turns out it comes from this.
1: Yeah, yep. Orions were here from the jump and they suck. They they're never good. You can't fix it. The only like fixing it just it shows your ass immediately because everyone is gross. Yeah. <laughs> Remember Imzadi with the Amazon who was a scientist, or uh, the Orion who was a scientist, but now she wears frumpy clothes so people won't assault her constantly
2: yeah i don't think that's fixing it i
1: think that you no, can, that's what you i'm can... saying immediately when someone tries to be like let's like make a good orion it immediately falls apart
2: okay like you're not incorrect but also that was peter david writing obviously Jackson, terribly
1: horny bullshit you I'm haven't watched that... the orion you haven't watched the orion episodes of enterprise yet have you
2: no i have not but i'm <laughs> saying that but th- that's fucking uh braga and Berman who also suck i'm yeah trier is not trier is okay is yes, fine that's true like the Orions are bad, and it's not unproblematic, but Trier is a much better attempt than anything that has been done by other, like the other things I've seen.
1: Yeah, no, fair enough. The one in Enterprise and, is really heinous, to be fair. I'm excited for you to get to it, because it's uh, not good.
2: There's a lot. It, now that Discovery's out of the way, I'm going to get back on my Enterprise train, hopefully before the uh, yep. season picks up again. Yeah
1: so anyway, you have a new dynamic on the enterprise where it's Pike is like super like cold and legit. And then uh, number one is even colder. She's like a living computer. Like she's just very calculated and remote and she can, she's very efficient. And it is, uh, like, I get why you do that in the like sixties. You're like, Oh, we're going to put a, like a woman on the ship and she's going to be hyper competent and like desexualized. And then the studio was immediately like, no, 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 unacceptable. Uh, And thus uh, she is removed and becomes a nurse (laughs) because that's what happens when you make a TV show for America in the 60s. Uh, But uh, she's great. And then because both of them are like the super like cold remote characters, uh, Leonard Nimoy plays Spock as like he's like an alien, but he's like laughing and smiling and has like a very fierce emotional tenor to him. And it's really weird.
2: yeah the dynamic is completely reversed because the humans on the spaceship are like hyper competent and focused on their work and always very uh dispassionate about the decisions they're making mm-hmm. so Spock because Leonard Nimoy like knows um that his role is to like be an actor and play off the scene the, the like people that are already in the scene like I remember you telling me that Spock's act like Spock as we think of Spock didn't just come from the writing it came from the fact that uh, William Shatner was who he was so Spock was then like created to play off of yep. uh, like the dynamic and that like just came from the actors as well as the people yep. um, as well as the writing and so Spock in this is very intense very like when everyone else is being logical and making big decisions like dispassionately he's like no we have to do this because it's the right thing you don't understand Uh, which fits for him in the dynamic of the show but it's fucking bananas because it's Leonard Nimoy being Spock
1: yep Uh, and then also like the ship is a much more muted color palette because it's everyone's wearing gold or blue Uh, I really like the ship design in
2: this especially in the context of like Discovery uh, and Enterprise and everything like this uh, whether it is intentional or not this feels a lot like a more mid step towards like between what came before and also uh the original series design like yeah. there's no bright red like there's no red is the thing yeah. like there's some in the set designs but not really
1: yeah uh specifically like i think a lot of like the coats they wear when they go down to the planet like just these oh, heavy the coats blue are coats are and coats it, they just look like discovery characters at that point <laughs> they do they really do like the costumes are clearly made for about 5 bucks a piece but uh yeah and then this show makes a great effort to show you all the cool technology because look at the cool technology here's a thing you can use to communicate with people that has no wires you can just call them up and wirelessly talk to someone else isn't that a radical idea crazy yep (laughs) the very first shot
2: is a zoom in on the enterprise bridge that like perspective goes inside the 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 like ship, from yeah. the model yeah. and they've like spliced the shot from a high angle to onto the outside of the ship so you zoom in like it's a big cgi shot that goes through the wind like like the opening shot of the discovery when um uh, of the shenzu where it like goes through as they're going through warp and like turns around and fades in through the window into
1: yep. michael like it's yeah. the
2: same shot but just in the 60s
1: yeah uh yeah no this is a really ambitious episode so, yeah, they go down to the planet, and then they, he starts getting visions, uh, which include an Orion slave girl, which is gross. Uh, and, like, in the visions, Vena is always playing, like, the actress who plays Vina is always play, or Vina herself is also just playing these roles, uh, meant to entice Pike, because he, the Telosians need them to mate. And one of them is a picnic on Earth that is, like, Star Trek, in many ways, can feel really dated. Nothing dates this show more than the vision of the picnic on Earth that they have. <laughs>
2: Uh, in like the Navajo Valley that's now. Uh,
1: yeah, it's like, green... but also like, it's like the most like 50s ass TV Western, like <laughs> here's some trees and a horse and everyone's just like <laughs> wearing a a flannel and it's awful. <laughs> oh, what a stupid thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, right. This show was from a long time ago. And, like, it's meant to be weird and
2: bad. Like, it's meant to be this moment where he's like, oh, I thought maybe I wanted to give up being in the stars, but actually this is boring as hell. I'm going to be on a starship.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, like, never have I, because, you know, like, because Star Trek just exists as an entity in our minds and TNG has been around for as much like as long as you've been alive and most of my life like it's easy to just compress Star Trek down into the old Star Trek and then new like middle Star Trek and now there's modern Star Trek but they're all kind of the same thing and no there was a lot of years between TOS and TNG it's yes it's a long time uh you get the amazing shot of Una bringing down like the giant phaser cannon and everyone operating it with cool sci-fi goggles to shoot the door
2: that one takes a whole long time it also takes about 10 seconds for them to even start using the transporter like there's a full close up shot of people's hands working the controls and be like oh they're transporting something from one place
1: to another place yep but also like that that when they use the phaser cannon it is like this incredibly elaborate hand animated like explosions on the door as yep. the beam hits it that they would never do again
2: no never
1: yeah uh, the this shows like this episode specifically has a love of technology that I feel like Star Trek just by its nature had to get away from because it, it would make the show unwatchable to normal people. But it's really nice to just see them be like, yeah, no, Star Trek technology is cool, and it, it's worth like just uh, admiring the aspirations of what technology could be in the future. Like you look at like the opening of Discovery. That's like here's a phaser, here's a communicator, here's a weird grappling hook, a spacesuit. Like it's here in this episode i mean this episode is very clearly written
2: by gene roddenberry for better and worse yes like, no
1: 100 because so also like like you have you have number one who is like the most like buttoned up cool i can get shit done woman but also pike has like a young yeoman like lady who follows him around and he's like oh what's a woman doing on the bridge uh, and then and those also things just the exist climate- next to each other
2: yeah, but then also the climax of the episode is actually all these people want more than anything to fuck Pike. Like, that is the climax of the episode! <laughs> that yep. is how the big reveal is, like, all of them in their different ways are just expressing their need to fuck the authoritative man. Like,
1: it's it's crazy. Like, yep. Gene... <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gene loved women. That's what everybody <laughs> says. <laughs> Whenever you listen to old interviews of people who, like, worked with him, uh, they very po- politically say, Gene loved women. <laughs>
2: i wonder what that means yeah Uh, yeah and and so you have that stuff and then you have like because he's gene roddenberry and he's trying to sell his tv show and his like vision uh more than he is trying to like write a sci-fi story you have the themes just being oh it's a test for like humanity and it's to like show like it exists mostly to uh espouse what humanity is at this point and also it shows off every single technological thing in like excruciatingly slow detail uh as opposed to the actual like uh classic original series episodes where they got sci-fi writers to write some sci-fi and it's mostly people talking about ideas Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just a very different approach even though it feels very star trek like yeah uh even though the terms are wrong like he says warp time factor seven or something
1: stupid yep no the idea, of how, the idea of how warp engines could actually work is not a thing that was discover- like really talked about until TNG. Yeah, because even
2: in um a TOS, they're all like, oh warp factor this and that, and like yeah. I I know if it, they're still like warp factor is still just the the, the Yeah,
1: but the idea know. of like warp bubbles that bend space-time, like the science hadn't caught up yet, or like the popular understanding of science had not caught up yet. The Akudas... <laughs> Yeah. Have not
2: watched enough TOS to define TOS. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no technical manuals had been written.
1: <laughs> no, there's nothing technical about the way Star Trek is written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, is that it for this episode? Do we have any more? So tech- what's interesting to me is that Vina wants to stay in part because like while the Talosians are like making her beautiful, they also seemingly make her like uh able bodied in a way that she is not typically. Like their visions yeah. are so strong and good that it actually gives her mobility that she didn't have before that.
2: It's yeah, it's the Matrix.
1: Yeah. But this also will tie in when eventually we watch the Menagerie because it ties into this episode. I watched the Menagerie. Read... Okay. Yeah, I you know that. what happens. Because I thought that the book was to do with Talos 4. <laughs> oh
2: you so also, also watched the Menagerie? Yeah. So I I went and watched the Menagerie and I I skipped through the bits where it was just re uh reusing yeah.
1: the footage yeah but so it like spoilers for the menagerie i guess but at some point like pike is wheelchair bound and they take him to Talos 4 to live with these people and he also becomes able-bodied right
2: yeah he just yeah. gets to live well because his whole thing is his mind is perfect but his body is broken so he can only communicate through like a light
1: yeah uh, the menagerie <laughs> which, like which we already have better technology than that star trek
2: <laughs> yeah it's it's not the best but um it's uh uh, it's that episode is very good for the the first half. Like the actual drama of it the way it yeah. sets up is very cool. Uh obviously the resolution and the way it like just falls into them just showing footage is very funny and bad. But uh the menagerie is a good time.
1: I, I have not seen it in probably a two decades so I would like to revisit at some point but yeah uh, the ways in which like this episode if you watch them in order the way this episode and then that episode like actually tied together in like oh at some point Pike also ends up like having this happen to him and the Talosians help him out of it and I guess they get what they want but not in any way they can use and everyone's just doomed and it's sad is like really good Yep. Also, Spock mutinies. Like, it's weird. Yeah. Well, look, Spock cares a lot. Spock mutinies to get Kirk in the movies to places multiple times, so... I guess that's true. <laughs> they
2: talk a lot about how, oh, oh I can't believe that Michael Burnham, uh, who is was Saryx
1: Ward, would mutiny. And, actually, and then Spock's, like, mutinying every ten minutes. <laughs> well, Kirk literally steals starships, and because he saves everyone and does, like, the right thing, and he never actually gets accused of anything... Like, he gets bumped down to Captain and given a new ship. That's, like, the slap on the wrist he gets at one point, which is the thing he wanted anyway. So, like, Michael Burnham is the first mutineer because she's the only person to, like, make that, like, take that shot and then flub it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I guess if if she had actually stopped the Klingons from making that, like, if she had prevented the war rather than causing
1: it. (laughs) If she was a white man. Yeah. (laughs) She would be running her own ship by now.
2: Look, we'll get to the book, but yep. Giorgio gets to do this and be fine.
1: Luckily, yep. yeah, she no, gets her for sure. shot.
2: Yep. So let's uh, get to the I'm...
1: next episode.
2: What is the next episode? Should I do you want me to introduce it? Or do you... No, I can do Wait.
1: it. All right. What is the next episode? Next episode is Dagger of the Mind, which is the 10th episode of the original series. It aired 3rd of November 1966. It is written by S. Barr David and directed by Vincent McEvity. In this episode, the Enterprise is dropping off cargo at the Tantalus Penal Colony on Tantalus 5. Uh, they receive a shipment from the colony, and it beams up, and they're like, well, this is like important material, so we need to go get a transport crew to bring it into the cargo bay. So everyone walks out, and then the the lid of the crate lifts up and it's a man that is smuggled aboard the ship. That man <laughs> runs roughshod over the ship and like tries to commandeer the enterprise by barging onto engine into the bridge. And they've been warned by Dr. Adams. Who's down below. It's like, this man's very dangerous. Make sure you subdue him. And they do. And then McCoy starts asking questions like, why is this man so upset? And when, Especially when they identify him as a doctor who worked on the penal colony. Uh, Dr. Van Gelder, that's his name. Dr. Van Gelder. And uh, they're like, well, we need to go down to that penal colony and see what the hell's up. Kirk's like, no, no, no. It's just like the picture of good... Uh, Penal colonies, like these are like spas now. It's perfect. Like prisons are great. We're in a utopia. What could a prison, how could a prison in a utopia be bad? And they're like, maybe you should beam down and check it out anyway. And then they beam down, and it's immediately the most shady shit in the entire world. Because Dr. Adams is like, oh, yes, we, we we rehabilitate everyone in this prison. Please look at this lady, Lethe, who did a like a crime and now she's cured. And this lady is like a pod person because she doesn't really like she's like, I am Lethe. I love it here. I do not talk about what I did because that is an old me that does not exist anymore. And Kirk's like, hmm, yeah, checks out. Uh, also, Kirk has been given a psychiatrist from Dr. McCoy's staff for this uh, this uh, journey. And it is Dr. Helen Noel. Noel who Kirk apparently danced with at the Christmas party in the science lab on the enterprise. We'll talk about it. Anyway, uh, she's like, uh, she literally, all she does during this tour is say that Dr. Adams, techniques are clearly correct. As Kirk starts to suspect that maybe everything's not up and up, but because she is a woman, she does not actually complete a sentence before one of the men interrupt her this entire tour. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Uh, anyway, Um, they see this like weird room where like there, this beam treatment happens. It's called the neural neutralizer, which is hard to say, but I'm going to do my best at the same time, Spock and McCoy are up on the enterprise interviewing Dr. Van Gelder. That's his name, right? Yes. Van Gelder. And he's like, watch out for the neural neutralizer. And so they contact each other and Kirk's like, you need to see, show me how the neural neutralizer works. And Dr. Adams is like, sure. Yeah, no, that's fine. And so he explains that it it, it erases negative memory or uh, thoughts and the technician implants good thoughts in their mind. It's like a weird hypnosis thing. Anyway, uh, Kirk and Noel decide that they're going to see for themselves whether how it works. And Kirk gets in the chair and is like, please show me, like, please introduce ideas into my mind. And then she tries to get him to, like, think that they slept together the night of the Christmas party. Um yep. Which is a really fucked up thing to do, but he did ask her to implant a, he said, implant a weird thought that I would specifically come from you and wouldn't just be a thing that naturally arose in myself. And her thought is, you're hot for me, which I feel like Kirk's hot for every woman. This is not actually one of those thoughts. Well, I thought she
2: was just going to say, like, kiss me, and he would get out of the chair and kiss her. But no, she actually,
1: like, changes his memories of the Christmas party. <laughs> anyway, while this happens, Dr. Adams comes in, because Dr. Adams is shady, takes over the machine and, like, basically, like, tries to... She, she tries to get Kirk to, like, actually, like, super fall in love with her, right? Like, that's his thing? Yeah, well, so, so he makes her...
2: He makes him fall in love with her, and then, like, says, and now she's gone, and the worst pain you've ever felt. Yes. And then, uh, William Shatner starts doing the, like, overacting
1: of this in the chair, like, no, Helen, I love you, (laughs) Helen. Yes, (laughs) it's really good. Anyway, um... As this happens, uh, Spock's trying to figure out what the neural neutralizer actually does, and he has to perform a strange Vulcan ritual on the man to because the man every time he tries to talk about this stuff is racked with physical pain, and so he uses something called the Vulcan mind meld to understand what's going on in Doctor Van Gelder's mind, and so he finds out that he's using this uh, this to it, like experiment with people and try to like replace their thoughts with the zone. Basically he's just into mind, like wiping people and making them his like servants or whatever. It's a bad scene. Anyway, Kirk, because he's Kirk and is the manliest man that's ever manned, uh, shakes off the conditioning when him and, uh, Dr. Noel get put in a room and he's like, Oh, you need to go and escape and like go through these tunnels and try to disable the force field so the enterprise can get us and save the day. Meanwhile, Kirk is brought back in the room and, As she does this and disables the force field, Kirk comes out and punches a bunch of guys because the beam is also shut off. He leaves Dr. Adams in the room as he, like, goes to see what's going on. Spock beams down, sees that the main power for the facility is off, and decides to switch it on, which means that Dr. Van Gelder in the room with the neural neutralizer is in there as it turns on and no one's, like, running it. And it just goes off and there's no one to, like put new memories in his mind as his mind is being drained and thus he is killed because his mind is emptied of all thought and he dies a horrible death and kirk is like this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to anyone and everyone's like yeah no it seems bad and then they shrug and leave (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great it, it so this is a true good bad episode of star trek so this is a classic
1: one of those so at one point dr noel when they first get there goes to dr adams and is like dr adams we can dispense with uh titles uh you can you can just call me helen uh doing this summary i understand why she said that because there's three doctors Act four, if you count McCoy, in this episode, and they all are, like, in the same scenes with each other, and trying to talk about Dr. Van Gelder, Dr. McCoy, Dr. Noel, and Dr. Adams was hard to hold my wrap my brain around as I was talking about this episode. But everyone gets to keep their doctor title unless they're a fucking woman. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, man, this episode is incredibly 60s. So... The Enterprise, so Gene Roddenberry's atheistic vision of the future is like a humanist wonderland, but there is a chapel on board, and there are Christmas parties. Department-specific Christmas parties, in fact. Yep. Uh, The 60s is real, y'all. The 60s is a whole thing. Also, there's a prison colony. So, when we talk... I guess it was like, on my third on Twitter, we didn't actually talk about this. Like, it's kind of fucked up that Star Trek just has prison colonies. Like, like, Uh, when when Kirk goes to Ruripenthe in Undiscovered Country, like, oh, it's a prison labor camp. That's really fucked up. But Michael Burnham's going to a prison labor camp.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and like, is going in such a way with like are they talking about the survival rights and those things? yeah that, like, it's, it's basically like, a death sentence
1: those non-starfleet prisoners are like yeah no everyone dies at this dilithium mine and this is the alternative where kirk's like no it's like a spa it's just perfect and actually it's just this guy running experiments on the prisoners like wiping their minds and making them his servants and everyone was fine with it like this dude is like famous like everyone knows who he is he is like a rock star of prison reform uh The fucking 23rd century sucks.
2: Yeah. like So the the whole situation with this basically comes out of incredibly dumb and bad views about prisons and crime, right? Like, it comes out of, like, this whole premise of this episode basically works, and it doesn't ever, like, it says this because it never actually gets into the details of anything because it's not really interested in that, but the premise is based on the fact that being a criminal is an inherent, like, psychological thing, and not like, a structural decision of what society decides to, like, value, um, considering we just talked about how every Star Trek character commits several crimes in every episode, and, but because they save the day, they're never punished. Yep. Um, And so, it, like, works from that assumption, and then, like, the interesting stuff comes from, like, Discovery, or comes from, uh like, the book. I mean, the book never talks about um prisons, but, like, comes from taking this utopian vision of the future which has incredibly fucked up unexamined uh things because they're just written by rich dudes in the 60s uh not and, even like, rich
1: dude just normal dudes in the 60s i, I assume that uh, okay fair enough but yes uh, look gene run had to like go on a speaking circuit to like soak fans for money because he couldn't get any of his tv shows made that dude was not like wildly wealthy
2: i guess that's true but uh my point stands <laughs>
1: Uh, and, yeah, and, but and, like, I think laying this exactly at the feet of just like rich people is not helpful like this is everyone
2: I can guess you're not wrong but it is uh, it is the, the viewpoint of like the people I guess when I may say rich people I mean like it's the people who are writing TV shows that is already yeah. like you're not gonna get like it's usually dudes but uh, I would
1: I would argue that the, this idea of prisons is what most of like the America at least thinks in 2017 rich or not that, that is terrifying to me but you're probably not wrong highest incarcerated incarceration rate of any like developed like first world quote-unquote country yeah no you're not wrong it's but it's fucked up because like that's
2: it just seems so alien to me as someone who has thought about it for five seconds but i guess yeah no i also agree
1: but uh like people are fucking they don't think about it and they just regurgitate what they're taught and what they're taught is if you went to prison it's because you did something wrong and you deserve to be punished lock them up forever Mm-hmm. But this goes, like, further than that. Like, it's not about... It's it's not
2: even about what they did. It's about who they are. That is, like... Yep. That is the perspective shift here.
1: Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that that's true, too. Like, people don't get out of prison because recidivism rates. And if you're a criminal, you're going to commit a crime again. Like, mm-hmm. it, prison makes people into criminals. Like... Yeah. E- and even if that is true, it's because of society's, like, stigmatizing of people who have been in prison and their inability to, like, actually rehabilitate anyone.
2: Yep. So... Yeah, so this episode's like really bad when you think about it in any stretch. But then it also,
1: like I say, has Kirk going, Helen no. <laughs> but also, Kirk spends the, the first 20 minutes of this episode being like, no, it's 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 a great prison. It's like a spa. I would go there. I've toured penal colonies like this. They're great. Like, just the most blatant, like, fucking poster child for aggressive, like top-down, masculine, patriarchal bullshit.
2: Yeah. But then it gets even more ridiculous as the character they pair him up with is a lady who exists to be that to him as he gets more
1: skeptical. <laughs> yep. It doesn't. Also, she is in the skimpiest uniform I have ever seen in Star Trek. (laughs) One of the funniest things in this episode
2: is they go into the lift and they go down, uh, and there's a shot as she's going in where like the, the skirt is so short. The skirt is so short that you can see like you can see the butt. The whole thing's on display. You've seen everything. You've seen it all. You've seen it all, yeah. It's just, you know,
1: it that it's does just... that play for you? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, it does. I'm going to uh, link that in the show notes. Please enjoy <laughs> Patrick Stewart's scene on extras. It's really good. I think about it a lot.
2: <laughs> I do not like Ricky Gervais, but I have some fond memories of like certain extras episodes. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the the butt's all out it's that tweet that's like you don't know why her butt's out you don't know her story
1: <laughs> it really is <laughs> also like because she is like the tiniest 60s woman like her ass is out but also like the uniform is not built to have such a cinched waist so it ruins the entire lines of the rest of the uniform like her her combat just like askew the entire episode because it's not like properly tailored to her body but the the actual funniest part the like climax of this is the The underwear because they knew it would come through is also color coded blue. And I died laughing. It's hilarious. Speaking of bad costume choices, the people on the penal colony all have (laughs) on their like robes this like dove hand sun, like religious ass cult symbol. Like, clearly, these people suck.
2: Yeah, and uh, uh, Doctor Adams is always like, "Well, I would never do any. I would never do anything bad. I would never. Everything's fine, Captain Kirk. Everything's fine. You can do what you want. You can talk to your officers. It's all fine. Everything's fine. I'm the most accommodating man who's ever not been evil." Yep.
1: Uh, yeah, he uh, is. He is immediately does everything Kirk asks in a way that entirely, like you'd have to be an idiot not to realize this man is evil. But it takes Kirk a long time to figure it out. <laughs> uh also
2: amazing is because they hadn't defined what transporters are
1: oh right yes right (laughs) the actual scariest part of this episode
2: (laughs) they beam up some supplies from uh, the colony and a man is inside the box like transporters work by then disassembling and reassembling the molecules you know every molecule that comes aboard also there are like
1: biofilters and pattern scans that happen with anything you beam up to the point where like they reassemble Pulaski when he, she rapidly ages in TNG back to her young self by using the pattern buffers to replace her old DNA with her, like, younger DNA that they just had on file. Doesn't that theoretically mean everyone could just become immortal? The, when you think about the transporters, they're terrifying, Jackson. Like, being able to
2: like that should basically render all other technology in star trek obsolete because yep. you can just reconstruct molecules and like it's terrifying the possibilities are crazy and no one really uses it for anything
1: other than we need to get to a new scene because if you start doing more than that well yeah the only reason there it's in the show is because they want to do shuttles and shuttles are too ex- like you can't have model shots every episode of a shuttle landing yeah uh <laughs> But, yeah, they aren't able to tell that
2: a man has snuck aboard in a box, which is really bad. And especially yeah. as this happens
1: immediately after the guy beaming the thing up is lectured about security protocols. Yep. But, no. And then Dr. Van Gelder is just the shoutiest, most histrionic man ever. He's still alive. <laughs> I went to look him up and the guy who plays it is still alive. He's 92 now. Uh yes, also uh interestingly enough uh, like when he did this uh performance he had to like rest for 4 days afterwards and I see why. Yep. It's
2: it's uh it's a whole thing.
1: Yep. Also in um in a DS9 episode there's a shipping label where Dr. Simon Van Gelder's name is like on the label. So he is still alive as of DS9 apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah, I know it's a long time. Ooh. Oldest man. <laughs> oldest man. Yeah. You know, people live a long time. McCoy's still alive when like TNG starts, so I guess he is. He's like 144. Like that's fine.
2: I don't see any points in your ears, boy, <laughs> but you look like a <laughs> God. <laughs> that's, that's a bad scene.
1: Um, y- yeah, no. It, it's not bad in the context of TNG season one, but it is bad in everything that comes after that.
2: It's Yeah, it's bad as when I think about it as a thing that actually happens in Star Trek.
1: Yeah. But I guess it's not bad in the scale of bad things
2: that... I come to mind when I think of the bad things that actually happen in Star Trek. I wonder,
1: I wonder why All Good Things Picard didn't go and recruit McCoy to help him as he was trying to figure out what was moving him back and forth. He is before. on the ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is canonically on that ship. You know, man, that's some fucking lore wank. Which brings us to the end of this episode, because clearly we're done talking about it. We are very much done talking about it. Wait, one more thing. One more hilarious
2: thing is when, after the day is, like, uh, saved... Uh, kirk reverts to his uh conditioning and just immediately starts making out with helen
1: yes which is only funny because then spock walks in yes and gives a face like "Mm." oh also spock beams down to a colony where they know shit is going down and the first thing he does is like just flip a switch that he sees (laughs) without wondering what the situation is and it murders a man (laughs) <laughs> yeah it does kill a man but like only so you can get like the real pathos of the episode yes but also spot come on don't just flip switches as soon as you land it's a bad episode but it's sure. fun yeah uh so we're gonna move on to our book uh you know if you don't watch discovery i don't look come on like if you're listening to this podcast and you can listen one, you can uh, you can listen to this book without watching Discovery, because it takes place before Discovery, but also watch some Discovery. It's good. Listen to our episodes about Discovery. But if you want to get off here, I will remind you next month that we are watching Muds Women and Arena, both TOS episodes, and we're reading The Ashes of Eden, which is a novel by William Shatner and the Reeves Stevens. Uh, <laughs> good, nice, helpful names. Easy to say on podcasts. Yep. <laughs> William Shatner. I got that one the first time. So, anyway. Bill. Yeah. (laughs) Call me Bill. (laughs) Alright, we're we're done. Musical break. We'll be back with a book. (laughs)
2: Month's book is called *Desperate Hours* by New York Times best-selling author David Mack.
1: <laughs> is well, he is first. a best-selling author?
2: He is a best-selling author. He has written a lot of books, most of them Star Trek books. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I just assumed, but a lot of them have been Star Trek books. I cannot speak to the oeuvre of David Mack, uh, but it is the first Star Trek Discovery novel released uh 26 September 2017 it takes place in May 2255 which is as the start of the book uh tells us is te- hm 1 year after the cage and yes. 1 year before Battle of the Binary Stars yep uh the pilot of uh Discovery so these those those two things happen 2 years apart <laughs> and it is a it deals with these two things. So I we're going to have a quick summary here because usually often in these podcasts we will like summarize as we go and like tell you the story but there is much more to actually talk about with this book. It's maybe got the most like interesting state of the Star Trek universe stuff. So we're going to do a quick summary up top like with the episodes.
1: Yeah. So there's a mining colony on Circa 3, and they're drilling in these giant drilling platforms. And one of the platforms strikes something weird that breaks the drill. And as they go to investigate what could possibly be, a horrible monster rises up from the depths of the ocean and tears apart the entire colon- like the drilling platform and launches an attack on the colony. And they're like, oh my god, we need help. And they send out a distress, a distress call. Meanwhile, on the Shenzhou. First and second officers of the Shenzhou are being moved to another ship as like they're all promoted and whatever, which means that uh, Captain Philippa Georgiou is out a first officer and needs to pick between her two like pet project lieutenants, Michael Burnham and Saru. Uh, Obviously, she picks Michael Burnham because we've seen Discovery and is like, you are going to be acting first officer. You need to prove it. Uh, Also, Admiral Anderson said I should pick you. So, I mean, I guess it wasn't on her. Uh, but I bet she would have picked uh, Burnham anyway. Anyway, they get this distress call uh, and they hurry over to Circe 3. At the same time, the Starship Enterprise, commanded by Captain Christopher Pike, receives the same distress call. And starts to head to Cersei 3, but then gets a message from the Shenzhou. No, we've got it. You just worry about your own business. And they're like, okay, well, we'll check back in with you, but we'll keep going. Um, They get to uh, Cersei 3 and this giant beast that has come up from the depths called the Juggernaut has launched a bunch of ships. Those ships are attacking a city. They disable the ships and then they talk to the colonists and the colonists are like, we don't know what happened. And then they look into it for three minutes and they discover that this colony is like an independent colony that was sent here by a corporation. And the corporation probably knew that there was like an earlier alien race ruins here and that would disqualify it from being settled. By a bunch of independent colonists and thus this colony is now immediately in a lot of trouble which means the governor of this colony then immediately like takes federation officers on the scene to provide aid hostage and locks herself up and is like we are going to make sure that we are a free colony we're going to do our best to make sure everyone is like has their sovereignty and maybe i'll go to jail but i'm going to make these federation assholes uh take care of it and meanwhile Uh, as Georgiou gets the information about the juggernaut and sends it to Starfleet. Starfleet realizes that this is like a giant death machine and panics and sends orders to Christopher Pike to take the Enterprise and nuke the entire planet until it is all glass, basically. Uh, He shows up and him and Philippa Georgiou get an argument where Georgiou's like, we can't kill an entire planet. And Pike's like, well, those are my orders and orders are orders because he's not Captain Kirk, he's Pike, damn it. And he's going to follow orders. And they get in a big shouting match about it. And uh, they're like, well, we have like three hours until the next wave of fighters launches. So maybe Michael Burnham can fix this because Michael Burnham is like, I have an idea of how we can fix this. So everyone pairs off her and Spock go down to the juggernaut to try to get inside of it to figure out what it is. Meanwhile, Saru and uh, Commander Una, who is Christopher Pike's number one, team up to explore the ruins that they find of the previous civilization on this planet, try to figure out if they are clues as to what the Juggernaut is and what this planet was before the colony came and settled it. Uh, that all happens. Uh, There's a bunch of arguments. Uh, Michael Burnham and Spock are actually the thing that matters in this plot where they go through the juggernaut, which tests them in various death chambers that they end up succeeding in, requiring them to mind meld at one point, uh, which uh, resolves both of their both of their interpersonal conflicts about growing up together. But like not really getting along because Spock was like, you got to experience feelings and my mother's love. And she's like, you got Sarek's adoration and I did not. And then they realized, no, they both got the exact thing that the other one wanted, and it was sad for them growing up in Sarek's household. Uh, They get to the interior of the Juggernaut, and they discover that it is a machine from the long-extinct Terranian Empire, which was this crazy advanced militaristic empire that expanded across the galaxy ages and ages ago. And it would colonize planets and test people, and then if they passed the test, it would... Congrats, you have joined the Empire. Die or like give us tribute, and... Uh, they are given the choice of dying or giving us tribute. And they're like, well, I guess we'll give you tribute. And they're like, okay, thanks. We're going to blow up these starships, uh, to, you know, help you out. And so the juggernaut goes to attack the enterprise and the Shenzhou, but they are ready for it. And they fight it. And Burnham and Spock blow it up from the inside as the enterprise is like cutting through it. Everyone saves the day. They shake hands. They disable the thing with the governor on the planet. The governor goes to jail, whatever everyone's fine burnham is made actual commander not just acting commander of the shenzhou actually i guess she's only a lieutenant commander but she's acting first officer yes
2: she is made proper first officer by the end
1: that's kind of what happens in this book jackson
2: yeah it's like actually kind of light when you lay it all out even though it's uh, a longer book in terms of it is uh, it is the
1: it is the epitome of comic book crossover events of two crews come together to fight an external threat and they don't get along until it's time for them to get along to finish the plot yep uh <laughs> there's a good quote of um like some of the
2: like promotional material he's like i didn't know how to how to um make this uh make the story work and then i got given the advice of oh uh have them stand off against each other but make them both right and i'm like that's every one of these stories david <laughs> david you knew that
1: <laughs> uh yes so the, the Shenzhou fucked up. So no, no. I want before we get there. I want right. to talk about ready rooms, <laughs> <and> starships. <laughs> yes. So the Shenzhou and the USS Enterprise exist in the same universe, and it's just a given now. You can't argue with it. It's canon, Uh which means that you have like Michael Burnham, Philippa Georgiou, and their nice blue jumpsuits running around being like women of color in Star Trek, right next to like the beigest Enterprise that has ever existed. It's just like fucking white men in muted tones on a very serious starship. And those just have to exist together and never is it more typified in two paragraphs in which Pike talks about the fact that he's like, he's, I'm glad that my ship doesn't have a ready room, uh, because now everyone can just see me do my logs and stuff on the bridge. I'm always center of activity. Everyone can communicate with me. But when an admiral calls with a priority message, I have to run back to my quarters to take it, uh, Meanwhile, Philip George is like, well, I like having a ready room because I can go in my ready room and I have privacy screens and I can talk to people. And I can do my paperwork. And I don't disturb my bridge crew and everything's fine. The ship will operate well without me as I go take care of captain things. And the two philosophies just being because humans are complicated is like you know, on one level, kind of a hand wave of like, no, look, these things just have to exist together. This is canon now. Sorry. But also the epitome of like, actual how humans are in star trek like spock goes on to the shenzu is like this ship has too many screens why do humans keep doing this why do you fix why do you fix what isn't broken like these ships are good why do you have to build a bunch of bullshit
2: yeah the parts where like characters react to the fact that these things exist side by side and instead of it trying to um like give an explanation for why this could be the explanation is just it is and so characters are like what the fuck are you doing Stuff like you have all these why is this ship this and this ship
1: this humans are dumb
2: yep <laughs> is the entire explanation
1: yeah spock's like vulcans never under, never understand why humans uh just go and make new things every five years but that's what they do that's kind of their thing i don't know except for 75 years where they all wore the same red coat It's a good coat, Jackson. (laughs) It's a really good coat. (laughs) It's a good coat. If it's good enough for Elias Vaughn, it's good enough for us. That's true. Who are we to argue with Big Boss? (laughs) Uh, So, with that out of the way, let's talk about how the Federation fucking sucks. (laughs) God, the Federation sucks. This book is, more than
2: anything that we've read so far, like, hyper aware of the fact that the Federation
1: is basically the militaristic arm of a colonization project, but um, also that they that there's not really any better way to like at least for Star Trek to envision the future.
2: Yeah, like that's what I meant when I was talking about like the way the especially engaging with uh, the twenty third uh, century stuff mm-hmm. uh, where you like you have the 24th century that is a space that exists and has been explored so when you go back to the old 60s star trek time you can like make that even more complicated um, and actually examine how like super bad it And like so you have uh these colonists who um have colonized a place without permission because basically they've been like exploiting bureaucracy in order to cover up their crimes and no one's really cared because no one actually
1: examines things unless it becomes a problem so a corporation has done this and then the colonists just want a place to live where they're free of federation rule because they're like we want to make our own way in the universe we don't want to be part of some stupid federation so they are caught between like exploitative like corporations and the federation's like hey we're all one big happy family and if you don't like it we're gonna fucking fire phases at you <laughs>
2: Yeah, so you have like
1: um, these
2: this like dumb libertarian colony that has just thinks of it itself as that, but is actually just I exists to be like fodder for a mining corporation.
1: Yeah, but also like those are like even if those people are like, oh, we no, don't tread on me. We want to be free out here in space. They're still people, and like the ways in which the Federation are like, no, just fucking nuke them. Whatever, we don't care. (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, because, like, that's what I meant. Like, you have those people who are, like, clearly shady and fucked up and doing other stuff. But then the Federation comes, who are supposedly the good guys, and their solution is to just
1: nuke them. So, on all sides, everything is bad. Uh, well, also, <laughs> the, the so the options are, Pike has orders to nuke them. Georgiou ha- is like, we don't want to nuke you. But because you accepted Federation aid, you are now subject to our laws. So, you are all under arrest for an illegal mining operation on this planet.
2: Uh, Yeah, <laughs> it's... uh it's bad the the it sucks to be on the colony but like the colony is talking about this and like oh it's fucked up that the federation just came in here and because we needed help have imposed all their laws on us and whatever but then someone else goes i mean what do we do i guess we could like become an orion slave colony that's
1: the other solution yeah <laughs> that was like oh man it sucks out here yeah Meanwhile, the actual, so what happens is, like, those two, the first and second officer of the Shenzhou leave, and Philippa Jarju is left to pick between her two wayward children. Michael Burnham, who basically, like, is, like, kind of standoffish with everyone because she still doesn't understand why humans are, like, the way they are, even though she is one. Uh, or Saru, who spends his entire time being, like, terrified of all these predators that he's on a ship with. And oh, his sorry. reaction to that is to be, like like, way too aggressive with people. Because, like, is, his fear his fear turns into anger really easily, and so he ends up saying, like, really aggressive things when, like, anything inconveniences him to the point where, like, he is incredibly off-putting and nobody really likes him. Which is, like, I guess fine as long as they respect him, but actually Georgiou and Burnham just take that opportunity to, like, needle him at every move. And so it ends up being that, like, Philippa Georgiou and her human friend just fucking shit on the alien the entire time.
2: And it never really, like, resolves, because, like, I... Sh- one of my biggest disappointments with this book, because I thought this book was really good, but I really like the Saru stuff. Because I love Saru. is great. He's a very, very, very sad boy who ends up I, loving I, people.
1: I don't like Saru, but I think Saru is very interesting. Oh no.
2: No. He <laughs> There is a scene in this book where he gets so pissed off about how unfair everything is that he like fucks up his whole room and then goes, Well that didn't that just made
1: me more sad. Now I'm gonna tie to this shit up. <laughs> like... So like the way that Saru acts like in private is fine. The ways in which he like is really shitty to the people he's ahead of. Like, he is, like, super aggressive in, like, sniping to his underlings in a way that is, like, not good either.
2: No, I mean, but, uh, so, uh, like, so is Burnham.
1: Yeah, so is Burnham. Like, no, ne- neither of them should be first officer of the ship, because they both suck.
2: <laughs> uh, but... I like because like Saru has the whole uh, subplot where he's working with these other officers. He's like, how are these officers able to get on with people? They just get on with people and talk to them, and it's weird. And I seem to piss everyone off all the time. And now I want Saru to become a good, strong boy who everyone likes.
1: I, want I mean, him to go on the he jam. is more of that. He is more of that in like on the Discovery though. He is like <laughs> clearly fodder for uh, fucking. Uh god it's been a while Lorca's rage like Lorca whenever Saru brings something up and Lorca doesn't like it he just stomps on Saru in like the most efficient way possible
2: yeah because like Saru sucks but he sucks in a way that's defined by his like otherness and so it just becomes a way for the Federation to just throw their space racism on this easy target
1: (laughs) but also at the same time like before Burnham gets the job she's like in her interior monologue she's like Oh, I wanted to move over to, like, the USS, I don't actually remember the name Intrepid, of the Intrepid, I think it was? Yeah, the Intrepid, which is, an all, like, one of the, like, new all-Vulcan cruise ships that the Federation has, where, like, all the Vulcans are like, fuck these other races, we're better, we're just gonna get on a ship together. And she applied Extreme to it, and they Vulcan. turned her down because the Vulcans are the OG space racists none more space racist yeah everyone sucks and then like later it's revealed that spock also considered it and was like no they would just turn me down flatly too even though i'm half vulcan
2: the fact that like spock is the prototypical vulcan in star trek like the most iconic and like one of the maybe actually the most iconic character in all of star trek probably i, yep. I don't know if that's true but it it probably is yeah no like, for sure it's him or kirk and he's
1: probably more iconic than kirk just culturally yeah no um
2: put it and this so, way put
1: it this way there's not an emoji that represents kirk on your fucking keyboard exactly yeah. <laughs> and so that is what is like thought of as Spock. but actually in the universe he's like
2: a failed shitty vulcan because he's half human and vulcan's are space racist as well and they're all about their purity and he's not actually that like he's not really like that popular in the universe mm-hmm. uh, and that's really interesting whenever that comes up that friction yeah uh, this, this box does good here.
1: But yeah, so you have a federation that is like not only just like the art, like a strong armed colonialism, but you have a federation that is like deeply shitty about like v- the fact that the federation's all humans. Maybe that's for a fucking reason because humans are goddamn racists. And Vulcans <laughs> are racist, but they're racist and like we want like to keep to ourselves. And humans are like racist. We're like, let's make the galaxy look like us.
2: <laughs> yep. And then like that in turn like makes. Uh, like Saru also has his own space racism where he's like all humans are predators and like that comes from a very real place of like what his own experiences are growing up and what his uh, like experiences on the Discovery are basically it paints it as like the tensions in this universe are such that it is not that the people in the
1: universe are bad, but it is structured such that this is almost inevitable that people also, come at odds like this. But also it's weird because like he, he's he joined Starfleet because he was rescued from his planet by Starfleet officers. That he yes. was like, Oh, I looked up to them and now that I'm among them they're all predators and it's he's like he's got like a weird Tasha Yar thing going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, um, but then like when he meets commander una he, she, he's like oh you're not like the others you're you, i don't get predator vibes off of you and she's like well i'm a vegetarian he's like oh that explains it no it doesn't <laughs> that's not how anything works uh, that, <laughs> that is, is like the yeah. idea that like being vegetarian imbues her and like spock because vulcans are vegetarian with like special like a sense of being with themselves is like the most hippie 60s bullshit i could imagine
2: <laughs> i know oh, i just read that as an offline like i uh Una in this book, because she's called Una here. Yep. Uh is um like uh, cool and that Sarah relationship works very well because she's like just here to do a job. She's not here to play the career of like I'm a Starfleet officer and I'm gonna impress my uh captain and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna put everyone at
1: odds. Cause Sarah's problems she's already she's already like number one on a deep space starship. Like she's got a really cushy job.
2: Yeah, but Sari's problem is that because of the tensions of, like, being on the Shenzhou and the th- stuff he's had to go through, like, he's incapable of reading, and also just because of, the like, the, the character they've made, incapable of reading any situation as, like any, like outside of, like, the good-bad-win-lose predator-prey binary, and mm-hmm. it makes it impossible for him to
1: function. <laughs> yeah, no, Sari's a sad boy. <sighs> he's gonna be okay.
2: I mean, he's not. He's gonna get owned by Locker.
1: <laughs> so... Uh, in our Discovery episode, I talked about how Philippa Georgiou is clearly positioned as the fucking John Luke yeah. Picard of the 23rd century. She is 100% the John Luke Picard of the 23rd century. Like, Pike shows up, and he's got the Enterprise, and he's like a young captain with orders from Starfleet. And she's like, look, this is not how we do things in space. I'm the one with the seniority here. You're, like, plucky, but, like, I've got the experience. You're going to listen to me. We're going to not blow up this planet. And then the minute the colonists start giving her lip... Uh, When Pike's like, Oh, what do we do? These colonists aren't going to listen to us in order to like placate the riot that's happening down below. She fires a like 5% power phaser from the Shenzhou on into orbit, like into the planet, like hitting the city with a wide beam phaser from an actual starship. And it just like stuns everyone. Like, Fucking Philippa Georgiou is the coldest motherfucker in the galaxy. <laughs> yeah, because we were all like, oh, she's the Picard of
2: the twenty fourth century so, or twenty third century, so she's going to be like super righteous and true and always the correct
1: position. And that's like that isn't untrue in she the is, way this but book also, is. but also sometimes the line must be drawn here. Which well, means a, there is a line must be drawn here. Speech in this book that we'll read yep. at some point. But she literally fires phasers on a fucking city of people from her starship, and it's amazing. <laughs> She does do that. She stuns the whole city.
2: Yep. <laughs> it's really them, like, good. And like the subplot with the um with the colonists, like so. Th- at first, they're kind of at odds, and then they're like, "Oh no, they've discovered we fucked up, so we've got to immediately go into hiding." Because if they start arresting us, then they're not going to bo- bother to fix this problem. They're not going to destroy this thing that's here. We we brought them here to save us, and they're like analyzing it and performing science on it while we while we are dying. That these fucking Starfleet assholes. So they go off and hide, uh, and this keeps escalating as eventually they discover that. Th-
1: yeah, no, what they actually. <laughs> actually do is get, like, a person who left Starfleet because they thought Starfleet sucks to, like, get in on, the, like, intercept the communications, and what they intercept is uh, Philip Bajorju and Christopher Pike arguing with Admiral Anderson about whether or not they should nuke the planet from orbit, <laughs> which they and do they're not like, take kindly.
2: Oh shit, wait, this, so either way, this is gonna go bad for us, so they start kidnapping Starfleet. Uh, and like hey you can't just kill us you gotta kill a people you know if you're gonna do this you assholes which uh,
1: pike would probably just be like yeah sure whatever <laughs> fire photons <laughs> I totally would pike is so done with it at this point <laughs> um, uh one of the things that we talked about with the last discovery episode and like i like in this book is that these ships feel incredibly powerful like they talk about firing photons on the juggernaut and they're like even if you just focus fire on the juggernaut you might burn off the entire atmosphere of the planet like these starships are dangerous, and I really like that about them, yes,
2: uh, it's uh, they' they are big deal space weapons, yep
1: uh, for sure. and
2: then and then like as the arc progresses and they're like the the juggles becoming more of a threat, and time is running out, and the colonists have like kidnapped everyone, Georgie's reaction is to just hang up <laughs> and yep. that subplot ends because georgia can't be bothered with it like and then it, they just surrender after everything's done to go to prison and like it's not really like once the tension's over that
1: subplot is just done but well, yeah, the way it actually ends because it's not really a problem right <laughs> well yeah no the, the the thing that happens is that like the fucking governor of the colony and christopher pike get in a big dick measuring contest available georgia's like the actual answer here is to wait for the people who we test to get things done to get things done and not lose our cool while we sit here yeah, so she just hangs up on them as the fight happens. Yep. Um meanwhile,
2: uh Burnham and Spock are starring in a Star Trek remake of the
1: 1999 movie Cube. <laughs> so w- w- while they go through these death traps what happens is that burnham and spock are trying very desperately to out vulcan each other and in oh, no, this moment no, 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 no. Burnham's losing <laughs> yeah sure but she's trying and in this moment in their conversations i wonder how vulcans have accomplished anything in space. <laughs> how do they ever even build a warp drive when they can't even have a conversation without it turning into like three-dimensional chess as they try to outmaneuver each other to talk about who's right about a supposition about a problem they haven't even correctly identified yet this book has a lot of the star trek thing where entire subplots of characters
2: working at things basically exist on completely nothing like foundations where they assume that this uh uh juggernaut is testing them and it is and they have to correctly assume that for the plot to work but there's no reason for them to actually think that other than because
1: it's the thing that's happened. I mean, uh, they they try to get in, like they're trying to get into it, and then they have a bouncing ball that leads them into death traps. So clearly, it's testing them. Because what I mean, else they, would it be? Yes, it is.
2: But the the clues are less vulcan logic clues of science and more clues of this is what the story is and we are in this story so we are going to act like we're in the story well they're trapped in adventure in games
1: jackson so there's yes. clearly a way out
2: <laughs> i know like it's it's that it's definitely like something that is in a lot of star trek episodes just because that's how you have to write sci-fi sometimes but it leads to the like long long scenes of burnham and spock just going around the point for ages and mostly just being dicks to each other over completely trivial bullshit just how did they get anything done it's very good it's very funny
1: and yeah as you said burnham like while burnham is like can use logic to like diffuse any human situation where she can totally like run bullshit circles around anyone up against spock she's immediately brought short
2: she is so mad at him the whole time. She's like, this he guy's a softball. I hate him so much. And basically starts every one of these scenes like, well, logically, Spock, we must do this, blah, blah, blah. And ends every scene going, well, fuck you, we're doing this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the best part is, like, Spock is bothered by it. But Spock is bothered by this stuff on the natural anyway, because he hangs around with a bunch of humans. So he's just like, yeah, of course we're going to do that. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> good Spock. Yep. Good, good Spock. Yep but then they have their mind meld and they recover, like they fix their trauma, quote unquote. It's implied that this event is what makes Spock go from the cage Spock to TOS Spock. And it's very funny. (laughs) Even though in this book, he is already
2: actual Spock. Like he's not.
1: But Una at the end is like, like, Oh, Spock, you're much calmer than I remember you being. He's (laughs) like, I have found some quieting of my purpose. (laughs) Uh, People, because the people who write Star Trek books, like David Mack has written a load of
2: these and, um, people have ridden spock a lot spock is one of the most ridden characters everyone is very good at getting spock voice
1: Yep, yeah for sure uh what else is there what other good beats do we have to hit uh i think that's kind of everything i have if you have something else feel free
2: oh well there's the part where so they they save the day uh they make Mm -hmm. it through to the um the cockpit of the ship they blow up the power thing and every the day is saved but then they still have to do one more needless thing that feels like the most big film action scene but in a book where they kill everything everything is saved but because it's still in the orbit the juggernaut starts oh, to right. fly down to earth or not earth or to the the, the colony surface and because it's fucking massive it will basically be the power of a thousand nukes and destroy the world <laughs>
1: And so, yep, they, so have they, to they have to team up. Beams. They have to team up their stupid uh, tractor beams and tow it up,
2: <laughs> because the juggernaut is precisely the size of where neither of them can tractor beam it alone. But if together, now that the like uh, protective hull plating has been destroyed, they can tractor beam it together. Which must suck for the people in the colony watching, just this thing get bigger and bigger as it falls down <laughs> towards them.
1: Oh, Age of Ultron. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of because that's <laughs> so, ruined that plot line. Yeah. It's a giant thing in the sky that's gonna fall and kill a bunch of people. Yeah. Uh but that was very silly. Yeah. They succeed. They,
2: they are do saved. succeed. They do succeed.
1: Yeah. No one's in trouble because everyone uh everyone saved the day. Everyone it's only day- when you fail to save the day that you're not that you're in trouble.
2: Yeah. Even though like they're talking to the Admiral and the Admiral's like, I guess you technically have seniority in this situation and like you are have more orders. Or like authority than Pike, but also these. are my- I'm the admiral. You're not doing what I'm saying. This is you're not allowed to do this.
1: Yeah, that uh, admiral doesn't live long enough to really hold a grudge past the next twelve <laughs> months.
2: Oh, uh, rip him! Yep, he shows up to get murdered.
1: Yeah, no, he gets ramming speeded. And-
2: oh, it was a good day to die.
1: Yep, God. <laughs>
2: Uh, it's a really good book i enjoyed reading this a lot yeah so like
1: the actual plot is very much like crossover event stuff but the ways in which this leans into yeah this this era of star trek the universe sucks and the federation sucks is very good like i i'm glad that there's writers who know yeah this is very self-aware about that stuff i'm trying to find
2: uh let me find the couple of quotes okay from the book that i wanted to read out so we have um uh, which one do I want to go with first? We'll do with this one first. When they are like, so they've been, basically this whole book has been the tension between are we going to nuke this colony? Are we going to fight? Are we going to do this? Uh, what are we going to do? Are we going to science the problem? What's happening? And then they run out of time and everything comes together very late and they basically have to be ready to do everything. And so um, Giorgio gives this speech to the crew because they're all like, this is fucking bad. We can't do this. We are a crew of scientists. We're not here to actually nuke this colony or fight this juggernaut. We this is not a thing we could do. And so uh here is Georgie's speech. He says like uh, I joined Starfleet for the same reasons many of you did. All my life, I thought of myself as a scientist first, an explorer second, and a diplomat when I needed to be. But we don't always get to choose the role we play. The price of serving in Starfleet is that there are times when we need to be soldiers. That's why each of you wears a uniform. It's more than just a piece of clothing, it has to be earned. To wear it is to tell the universe that you are part of something greater than yourself. The reason we all wear the same uniform is to remind us that we've all sworn to put aside our egos, our wants, our needs, our personal beliefs, and faithfully carry out all lawful orders given to us no matter how terrible they might be this is the burden we all vowed to accept and like basically gives the crew this we're all following orders we have to do this speech when they're about to nuke an entire planet like it's it's to be not fair she good. also
1: she also doesn't believe it she just knows that she has to tell them that to get them to do it and then she'll deal with the consequences
2: yeah no like it's not like
1: she's in she just wants to make sure that
2: her basically that her ship doesn't Everyone on the ship doesn't like become incredibly depressed from having to yeah. do this order,
1: but also like knowing that like this is on her, whatever happens, like she needs to let them know that no, that she has inspired them to do this. So if they need to blame someone, they can blame her and not themselves,
2: yeah. Uh, and I, I thought that was like a key passage in the book of like, oh, okay, Starfleet, like everyone thinks of themselves as soldiers, but because like uh, thinks of themselves as scientists, but that doesn't actually matter because they're always going to revert to this when they have to. Therefore, it is always, like, an implied threat of them. Like, they can't be peaceful when this is a thing that they, like, in their options at all times. Yep. Um, and then later on, she just she just goes, uh, like, our job is to hold the line. Come blood, come fire, come hell and self. We draw the line here. <laughs> yep. Which is very funny.
1: Yeah, no. Uh,
2: but those are the only, like... Uh, quotes i had picked out of like things about the way this universe is at this point in this book mm-hmm. it was a good read
1: yeah no it good time go on good reads and review this good read <laughs> <sighs> it's
2: good it's good 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 one
1: there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway we don't have any questions uh if you want to send us questions or comments uh, podcast at neuralmapping.com Next month we are reading The Ashes of Eden again, written by William Shatner and the Reeves Stevenses. And uh, I'm excited for that. That is a I know that's a romance book, so let's hope it's better than Imzadi.
2: I'm not that. I mean, I'm excited for the second one. I know we need to get through the first one, but yep. I I really just want uh TNG nonsense.
1: Yeah, no, the second book about William Shatner as james c kirk starts with kirk being dead so let's enjoy that when we get there (laughs) the first book starts with him being dead uh does it
2: i opened the book the first thing is like spock looking at his grave
1: god right right yeah yeah no that's interesting because it's always it's the rest of that book is just a flashback it's like six months before the launch of the enterprise b
2: oh it's it's late it's not like a i thought it was yeah no it is
1: old kirk
2: oh that's that's more interesting okay that's cool All right. Well, that's it. This episode didn't run as long as I thought it would.
1: No, that's all right. That's good. We're good. Jackson. Yes. Plug zone. Plug zone time. So. Uh, We have a number of other
2: podcasts. First of all, you can find me on Twitter at off. You can find the other podcasts we do at AbnormalMapping.com. We have Abnormal Mapping, which is a game club at TheBestGame.Club. We have The Amory Score, which is a podcast where me and Molly are reading and listening to Code and Cambria. It's very, very silly. Uh, That is at INeedMayo.com. We have Fireside Friends, which is Ryan and Alan's good, good podcast. You can find that at FiresideFriends.com net always cool guests they're taking a little break uh uh over the holidays but we'll be back and um there is novel not new which is a new podcast with uh jen colin and you talking about visual novels it's another game club all the games from that will be listed in the like abnormal mapping games section that'll all be you can all find them there uh but it is its own podcast with its own feed with its own topic everyone seems to be enjoying it it's about visual novels have a good time so that's it is there any more any more secret plugs that you told me not to give
1: because you wanted to give them <laughs> i'm cutting this out also jackson so okay sorry yes i fucked uh, that up abnormal mapping is a patreon supported network you can find that at patreon.com there are an array of tiers and awards on those tiers you can get writing from me and jackson for five dollars a month at one dollar a month you get our secret bonus patreon podcast the great gundam project which once a week me and jackson talk through two episodes of gundam we will be doing that until we die. We are nearing we are two thirds of the way through Mobile Suit Gundam. Jackson gave me crap in the Gundam episode for saying we were wrapping up Gundam. So I will tell you we are two thirds through. Uh please enjoy that. It is a great show. You can find me on Twitter at EM underscore being. That is it. Enjoy your Star Trek. Lament the fact that Discovery is not back yet. And I will see you out there. We
0: got the refugees i club, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big club, John. John, Look, look, a look, a look, a look, a look, 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 look shorty got back. Should I ask her for a dance? Hold on, there's too many in the wolf pack. And besides dirty cats talking to her, buying her fake furs and taking her to the fever. Quiet as it's kept, they ain't even, it's been. She spins, his Franklin's, at the malls with her friends. Material girl living in a material world, but it's alright, cause it's Saturday night. So, Mr. Funk Master, Punk, the BGs. And all you college students playing, Weegees, check the spelling R E F U G E E, get the CD from I'm Sam Goody, hee he, you ain't even close with the rhymes that you wrote. Don't be mad cause you broke, let me clear my throat. Uh-huh, uh-huh, John Forte, grab the mic, don't sway it this way. I'm uh, more just a rhymer, you still a small-timer. Hoping at the game, treat that ass a little kind of. Every step tangled, your beef don't concern me. I'm eating mangoes in Trinidad with attorneys. Ooh, yeah. My boots, slang flow, worldwide like a carrot. With to every spot where nobody got insurance. Rubber do the math, you ain't half nigg's it. My man's claim true, you forget about hold ho, just a new sense. like my influence, well recognized. You alive, trying to do it. Got you toy your lady. Oops, we, we nuts, we baby. Use. Smooth and charismatic, automatic. You gon' save me. Okay. God bless the dead, as my son survived. We strive to teach you, baby, and stay alive sure alive. <laughs> Next, baby. Jump for it, not Watch <laughs> your lady. Watch your lady, yeah. All right. around baby yeah. You got more than a dollar in your pocket right now Put yeah, your, hand yeah. your hand Well you can't tell by the way I roll Shorty that I'm a ladies man A businessman Condos down the shore Multi-million pension plan uh-huh. But it ain't in my plan To make moves without the fan no, keep do. it intact Your class through the track Jump, play the map yeah. while I pay the tax Business as usual Watching suspects still my assets Get cut with G-Lets We built this concept Connect like 9X Drinks at the bar My American Express I well, you didn't just kiss my girl. Hey, man, the threat. You want to disrespect me? Let's go outside.
1: Oh, cook up, cook
0: up, the cop up, pull up, pull up. Then my cup up, cup up. You, who's calling bluff? Now you shook up, shook up, cause you lock up, lock up. Man, I love up, love up. You, who's calling bluff? Hey, yo, John is chilling. Dirty cash dealing. One more, can I say, we living. That's what we got, we got. Uh, 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 uh. leave the knives and the guns alone uh uh-huh refugees on the microphone come on leave the knives and the guns alone uh uh-huh refugees on the microphone say what you can't stop the shining rock steady you can't stop the shining Come on, you can't stop romancing, elite fours, you can't stop the dancing. Where the ladies at? And for the ladies, we won't play you. If you fat, shake what your mama gave you, hey. Whether you're fat, the slim, bubble, your ting. Fellas, if you need help, use ginseng. Look at here, you can't stop the shining, uh-huh. Look at here, you can't stop romancing. We uh-huh. just a alive, baby. You know the flavor of the here. refugees. Look here we, we go, look Live at the carnival, 9-7 to infinity high, refugee all-star.